One counter-argument might be that the de facto state capture of Ethereum and gradually becoming more and more OFAC compliant could, at the same time, be said to give it practical grounds to become more accepted as money via state enforcement, and more transparent than fiat currencies in traditional finance also. However, the cost is, once again, explicitly the loss of decentralization. So whatever kind of money it is, it is not decentralized, and therefore cannot contribute to credibly decentralized finance. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And you know what we're going to do today? We're going to read about Bitcoin. Shocker. I know. I know this is, this is a serious deviation from the normal content of the show, but I promise you're really going to like this one. So we're, we're back to Alan Farrington uh, and uh, Anders Larson wrote this one with him, but he won't stop putting stuff out. And uh, this one is, as I've been told, uh, no one has time to read this. Uh, and it's very sad because it's really, really good. But luckily, I do have time to read this, so I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to make this very easy. This is, uh, again, from Alan Farrington and Anders Larson, and it is Green Eggs and Ham. It's basically a follow-up to Only the Strong Survive um, and uh, a bit more in-depth on some of the specifics of DeFi versus decentralized finance conceptually. Um, removing the conception from its current quote-unquote practice in crypto and how essentially it's lost the plot, so to speak. But I had this uh, recommended to me by about a hundred people. So um, yeah, I just decided I was going to skip right on and we were going to get right into it. This will be two parts because it, it, is, it is a bit lengthy. Um, and hopefully the second part will be out tomorrow, but we, I managed to get about half of it recorded today. So we're going to jump right into this. A quick thank you before we do to Swan Bitcoin for just being the best place to onboard people to Bitcoin. I actually just got someone, uh, sp speaking with someone today who, uh, unfortunately had gone to Bitcoin.com, uh, and I redirected them back to Swan Bitcoin, and I think that's going to work out a lot better for them. A huge thank you to Fold for giving me sats back on all of my Christmas purchases. It I'm stacking so much right now, it's amazing. Don't forget that you can get 20,000 sats for free by using my link right there in the show notes. And then of course, CoinKite for keeping all of those precious sats, your sats back on Fold, and your sats from Swan Bitcoin safe. Safe and secure and custodied by you behind your keys and you get 10% off with those guys. And you'll find all this magical stuff right there in the description. So with that, let's jump into today's read. And it's titled, Green Eggs and Ham, Decentralized Finance, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, by Alan Farrington and Anders Larson. 
What follows does not represent the views of either author's employer and is not financial or investment advice. It is intended as a philosophical, technical, and economic assessment of a novel class of Internet protocols. These protocols mostly happen to give rise to natively digital assets, which lend themselves to naturally emerging online and effectively public markets, and which present direct investment opportunities. Nonetheless, the following is merely and only our opinion of how these technologies are likely to progress. Readers considering investing in any asset discussed herein should do their own research and should not rely on our work. Quote, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Marshawn Lynch testifying on behalf of Sam Bankman-Fried. A common refrain in the wake of the collapse of FTX, as with Celsius, BlockFi, and Voyager before it, was that this was CFI, not DeFi, or centralized finance, not decentralized finance, and, if anything, only further demonstrates the need for DeFi. Pundits railing against DeFi are therefore missing the mark in their overbroad hostility, it has been said. In our previous paper, Only the Strong Survive, we made each of the following observations. 1. Our main problem with DeFi is that it is not decentralized and it is not finance. 2. Nonetheless, we support the idea of decentralized finance in theory, even if DeFi isn't it in practice. 3. We believe a variety of decentralized finance will emerge on Bitcoin, and to some extent, already has. In that paper, we did not explain what we deemed to be workable decentralized finance in theory or what constraints might limit how workable decentralized finance might develop. Tying all these threads together is the aim of this paper. We will distinguish between DeFi to mean what actually exists in crypto and has done for the past three years or so, and decentralized finance to mean an ideal, sensible, workable version. In Part 1, Decentralized Finance, conceptually, we will investigate the conceptual characteristics a candidate decentralized finance would need to have. In Part 2, Decentralized Finance, technically, we will add some additional technical characteristics and turn these insights into a framework for evaluating workable decentralized finance. In Part 3, the short, sad saga of FTX, we will recap the FTX debacle. In part four, let's play the blame game. We will apply our framework to FTX and evaluate to what extent it is helpful to blame CFI, DeFi, and whomever else. In part five, DeFi's fatal conceit, we argue that, as it stands today, we don't think it is likely that crypto DeFi will become decentralized finance as it is both culturally and technically doubling down in the wrong direction. Part 1. Decentralized Finance Conceptually And then this protocol issues a token, we'll call it whatever, X token. And X token promises that anything cool that happens because of this box is going to ultimately be usable by, you know, governance vote of holders of the X tokens. They can vote on what to do with any proceeds or other cool things that happen from this box. 
And of course, so far, we haven't exactly given a compelling reason for why there ever would be any proceeds from this box. But I don't know, you know, maybe there will be. So that's sort of where you start. Sam Bankman Freed. We will start with the history of development in crypto DeFi to properly frame our analysis. Thereafter, we will set up this analysis by doing our best to define both, quote, decentralized and, quote, finance, so as not to assume they are well-defined and exhaustive. In part one, we will focus on conceptual criteria we would expect of decentralized finance. In part two, decentralized finance technically, we will address more specific technical criteria. A brief and generous history of crypto DeFi. Crypto DeFi, at the time of writing, is far more sophisticated and complex than, for example, the majority of the output of the 2017 ICO bubble. Unfortunately, our feeling is that this sophistication and complexity only serves to mask its flaws. Hence, the evolution of the state of the art is worth briefly recapping. The first iteration of token proliferation was not even described as DeFi necessarily, a term which came into vogue around 2019. The earlier period was based around ICOs and was focused on a handful of now more or less debunked theses. One, the FAT protocol thesis, or what we might call native tokens. I'm launching a blockchain and you can buy pre-mined coins from me. Two, the utility token thesis. I'm building a business and you can invest in it by buying a token that rides on a layer one blockchain. Or three, the velocity of money thesis, or MV equals PQ. My blockchain application will settle a lot of transactions, stablecoin or otherwise, and the token will appreciate as it will be needed for gas fees. Either native or utility tokens, depending on the exact construction. After the failure of nearly all such projects, it was more or less internalized by the industry that the reintroduction of borderline barter floating value private monies is less than ideal. This would arguably be true for any economic exchange, never mind those with the fundamental premise of openness, but the idea of removing them immediately creates several problems. Native tokens and utility tokens defined interaction on the network. Without them, it isn't clear what the network means. The only workable answer is a tokenless smart contract to be utilized by other tokens, but this is also unideal because, first, such a smart contract could never be updated and would have to be set up and deployed in its final form, and second, it is unclear how development would be funded. An immediate theoretical step would be to retain root control of the smart contract and attempt to monetize but this would somewhat defeat the purpose of automatic execution if what is being executed can be amended on a whim. Another approach for certain kinds of exchange applications would be to add fees and to distinguish between users and, quote, liquidity providers who interact with the same smart contract in different ways. Liquidity providers put up tokens that enable the application at the risk of loss or impermanent loss to be detailed below. And users pay fees to access it, which go to liquidity providers. The evolution of these applications, and in some sense the solution to some of these problems, was different varieties of the governance token. Root access to the smart contract would be tokenized. 
This would, in theory, go a long way to protecting users from instantaneous governance abuses, given the mechanism of implementing changes is also transparent and on-chain. It would separate the users of the smart contract from the token in which they aren't necessarily interested. It would mean that the method of monetization, usually usage fees of some sort, can be distributed to governance token holders, where applicable governance tokens could also be issued to liquidity providers, either at initiation or as the rolling reward for enabling the service. This in turn would mean the token can be valued relatively accurately as, quote, application equity, such that ownership can be dispersed and partial to the value of the service, making governance abuses even less likely and enable price discovery around the true value of the service being provided by the smart contract in the first place. And finally, it would enable funding of development by the straightforward channel of investment in these tokens. As of 2022, we propose the following taxonomy. Quote, Native tokens are the likes of ETH, SOL, BNB, ADA, MATIC, etc., as well as Bitcoin. Governance tokens are as just described, although we will further dissect this category further down. Stablecoins, including wrapped Bitcoin and even wrapped ETH, represent tokenized exposure to an asset with no native existence on that blockchain. Some, quote, utility tokens still exist, and it is arguably the case that many so-called governance tokens are really just bolt-on utility tokens, which we will discuss further down. There is a final miscellaneous category that typically have no smart contracting abilities, whether at the protocol or governance level, but are more like gift vouchers for the business that issues them. We will call these voucher tokens for lack of a better name. With this in mind, let us now investigate the characteristics both quote decentralization and quote finance would need to have in order to be credible, starting with the latter. Finance defined. Finance is not just the movement of money. This is imprecise. For example, gambling is not finance, nor are payments if they don't involve a financing component. Finance is the use of money to facilitate the pricing of capital. Capital means factors of production that are not directly consumable, but which intend to produce goods or services at a profit generating a return and compensating the contributors of capital. This may also go for individuals rather than enterprises, in which case the goal is not as easily conceived of as profit, but rather as affordability. There are a range of activities that constitute facilitating the pricing of capital, yet which involve the use of money in quite different ways. A personal loan is quite different to a business loan, a personal loan may enable a customer to purchase something from a business they would otherwise not be able to, which in turn allows the business to be profitable, which in turn generates a return for their capital providers. A derivative is quite different, but ultimately has the same purpose of reducing the uncertainty of the future and its possible effects on return-seeking capital already allocated or intended to be allocated. A crucial concept that goes a step further is that of a security. Imagine we start with a contract entitling one counterparty to the rights to some flows of money to be provided by the other counterparty 
under future circumstances that may be specified, variable, contingent, down to that counterparty's judgment, or some combination of these. A security is a contract that gives these rights to its holder, such that they can be traded beyond the original counterparty. This means that the market can crowdsource what these future money flows are worth right now and hence allocate capital to a far wider range of capital-forming enterprises than holders of mere money would be able to identify and exploit on their own. Note that a loan, if tradable, is a security, as is a derivative. In fact, every tradable financial instrument that is not money is a security, even if it is merely the right to some asset. Possessing an asset itself is not the same as possessing the right to claim this asset from a counterparty. In financial terms, native tokens are perhaps best thought of as an analog to a gift voucher, yet which is perpetual rather than ever truly redeemed, although there may be some more complicated mechanics such that it is partially redeemed, partially reissued, and so on. It is a voucher for a network rather than a company. It is pseudo-money, money that can only be redeemed for one computational service. That is, to whatever extent they were not centrally issued as securities. Voucher tokens are gift vouchers for a company, in a much more limited sense, given the company necessarily operates on the network on which the token is issued for the concept to make any sense. They tend to be burned when they are redeemed. Governance tokens, on the other hand, are clearly securities. As a working definition, a security is a tradable contract exchanging money up front for well-defined but uncertain streams of money in the future. We emphasize that we do not attach this label to suggest they should be regulated. That may or may not be the case, but it is irrelevant to our argument. All that matters is that this is an accurate financial analysis. Later, it will become relevant that they are not regulated regardless of whether or not they should be. Finally, utility tokens are clearly securities as well, just with an even more opaque avenue for returns and hence investment theses. The streams of money in the future are uncertain, but also poorly defined. In practice, most seem to amount to the hope of selling for a higher price in the future. As mentioned above, many so-called governance tokens are really bolt-on utility tokens providing simulated decentralization and governance with no fee sharing. Decentralization defined. Let us move on to decentralized. There is a subtlety here that we mention in a footnote above and will return to several times throughout the paper. The implication is one of removing centralized gatekeepers, which are prevalent in traditional finance. But what then? Can some people interact without going through centralized third parties, or can everybody? This is not a trivial difference. The former is arguably better captured by peer-to-peer, -peer, direct lines of communication between counterparties who wish to exclude third parties, centralized or not. Whereas the latter implies nobody can be excluded. When we apply this understanding to contractual rights to flows of money, quote, excluding nobody can only be understood to mean that everybody is able to buy and sell these contracts if they want to. In other words, 
They are tradable, which in turn means they are securities. But securities necessarily have counterparties, the party who issued the security and from whom the security is a contractual right to claim some flow of money. And every tradable financial instrument, besides money, is a security. We assume the idea is to represent both money and securities with tokens on blockchains, given this is pretty much exclusively what has happened in crypto DeFi. But we will note in passing, and return to several times, that the peer-to-peer -peer understanding is just as valid. Quote, contractual rights to flows of money as digital bearer assets needn't take the form of tokens, even if this has been almost entirely ignored to date in crypto. We established above that to be considered, quote, finance at all in a candidate decentralized finance, one, the flows of money have to be facilitating the pricing of capital and not just the movement of money for its own sake. With the clarification that the instruments of decentralized finance need to be securities, we can add a second fundamental conceptual criteria for a security to be meaningfully decentralized. So two, the money used as a flow to facilitate the pricing of capital also has to be decentralized. Let us recap the candidates for money. Native tokens, governance tokens, voucher tokens, utility tokens, and stablecoins, including wrapped Bitcoin. We can tick off governance tokens, voucher, and utility tokens immediately, as they are centrally and costlessly issued and cannot be money, never mind decentralized money. Stablecoins are fascinating in that they can be thought of as simultaneously money and securities. Recall they are not literally the money they are supposed to represent, but a right to claim it. They, quote, work as money to the exact extent that they work as securities. If the claim of redemption for real money is widely believed to be credible, they will tend to be treated as a viable money substitute, or fiduciary media, to be more precise. This is worth bearing in mind whenever we encounter them again. Stable coins can importantly be split between issued and algorithmic. While far closer to credible money, issued stable coins are naturally not decentralized. They are issued by a custodian who represents a single point of failure. Algorithmic stable coins are a far subtler proposition. For the same reasons as centralized stable coins acting as fiduciary media, it is fair to recognize them as credible money insofar as they are also credible securities. We acknowledge that in the best-designed cases, it is also fair to recognize them as credibly decentralized. We have a serious issue with algorithmic stablecoins, but as it is a technical one and not a conceptual one, we will save this critique for part two, decentralized finance technically. For now, we are happy to say that algorithmic stablecoins can be credibly decentralized money. This leaves us with native tokens. Are they money? Can they be? To be clearer about the implications of the question, we are asking this of the native tokens of layer one blockchains. We do not think it is controversial to describe Bitcoin as money. It is designed to be money and essentially nothing else. What of ETH, SOL, BNB, ADA, MATIC, and so on? We also do not think it is controversial to say that these are at best 
vastly inferior monies, and more akin to computational resources. The blockchains unanimously describe themselves as, quote, smart contracting platforms, and the native coins as gas for paying for computation. Of course, we should look at how these assets are used, rather than taking statements made by their creators at the time of their creation as gospel. Not only might they be used as money regardless of these statements and accompanying design decisions, but as it happens, Ethereum developers have gone on to make centralized changes to optimize monetary policy to compete with Bitcoin as money, EIP-1559 and others. But we would argue that the centralization that enabled this change is self-defeating. A similar problem in this regard is that all, not just ETH, were pre-mined to a greater or lesser extent. This is a touchy and sometimes overblown point given the purpose of a pre-mine is typically to fund protocol development in exactly the same way as with a seed investment in a company. But this observation properly captures how these tokens came about and how they should be conceived of. They are securities. Their issuance and control are far too centralized to constitute credibly decentralized money, as is the scope of what they are intended to be, quote, spent on. One counter-argument might be that the de facto state capture of Ethereum in gradually becoming more and more OFAC compliant could, at the same time, be said to give it practical grounds to become more accepted as money via state enforcement and more transparent than fiat currencies in traditional finance also. However, the cost is, once again, explicitly the loss of decentralization. So whatever kind of money it is, it is not decentralized and therefore cannot contribute credibly to decentralized finance. Conceiving of ETH and similar as first and foremost computational resources, i.e. gas tokens, which happen to have taken on vastly inferior monetary properties to Bitcoin, strikes us as more appropriate. Recall, above we described them as pseudo-money, money that can only be redeemed for one computational service. That is, to whatever extent they were not centrally issued as securities, which we again feel is appropriate. Why so serious? In part one, we have covered the conceptual criteria we feel is necessary to credibly capture decentralized finance. The reader might be wondering, are we just ruling out everything we dislike based on pedantic definitions and ignoring the reality of development in crypto DeFi? We understand this impulse, but we reject it. This is absolutely worth being pedantic about. If we are not pedantic about the necessity of pricing capital, and we are willing to admit any flow of money for any reason, we invite entirely overlooking that the pretense of capital formation is the sole conceptual source of speculative value in these assets, and the infusion of tens of billions of dollars worth of return-seeking investment. If we are not pedantic about the flows of money pricing capital, it is not plausible that capital is being priced, given capital formation relies on market signals of likely profitability and returns. What is being, quote, priced is far more likely to be something along the lines of collectibles or commodities. In other words, if the flows aren't in money, we aren't talking about finance in the first place. 
And if we are not pedantic about this money being decentralized, we negligently invite the greatest rug pull of all time. In other words, if the money isn't decentralized, then none of this is. Even so, we feel the relevant and necessary criteria doesn't stop here. These criteria were merely conceptual. If the reader prefers, she can withhold judgment on whether or not Crypto DeFi fits this conceptual framework and continue to part two, decentralized finance technically, in which we will investigate further technical criteria we believe are necessary for credible decentralized finance. Part two, decentralized finance technically. Let's pause right here for a second, and I want to talk about counterparty risk. So, the secret sauce to using a service to buy Bitcoin and just having the least exposure to the counterparty risk as possible, in my opinion, is automatic withdrawals. This is a hugely underappreciated feature that Swan Bitcoin has, and I don't really know many or any really under other services off the top of my head that have this. I literally set an amount that I'm willing to risk, you know, simply for the sake of not having a constant stream of transactions to my cold storage. And the minute it hits that amount, they initiate a withdrawal. I get an email, I click yes, and the Bitcoin's sent to my keys. And this is just the savings plan side of Swan Bitcoin. I've been using Swan for, I don't know, since they started doing this to automatically buy every single week which is awesome in a bear market like right now, and it automatically sends it to my keys. It is one of the least managed things that I have to deal with, and it is constantly making, it is constantly growing my stack. And then all in all the, the free time that you're not trading and stressing out and staying up late wondering if you've got enough leverage and trying to time the market, well, you can just learn everything there is to know about Bitcoin because Swan basically has that hold repository as well. They have a team that is constantly there to help. They answer questions. They have the Cafe Bitcoin. They do Twitter spaces. Uh, and they've got Swan Private if you're trying to get assistance with connecting your IRA, your retirement account, your business account, your trust, and plus seriously awesome market analysis of all the chaos that's happening in the space right now. Go to the website, download the app, check them out. I got a special link for you guys. If you want to use it, it's right there in the show notes. And with that, let's jump back into the read. Part 2. Decentralized Finance, Technically In the short run, the market is a voting machine. But in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Benjamin Graham on Crypto Following the conceptual criteria set out in Part 1, we assume a decentralized security is facilitating the pricing of capital with flows of decentralized money. We will now be more specific about how such a security would have to technically operate in order to credibly capture a, quote, decentralized contractual right to claim from a counterparty. We list below some characteristics a security may have that would lend to it being sensibly described as decentralized also. 1. There is a counterparty, but neither the law nor any credible enforcement mechanism of real-world contractual guarantees is a point of centralization, and so the flow of money per the claim on counterparty commitments and holder rights operates on trust. 2. The contracts are enforced automatically, 
and the counterparty has no choice but to meet its commitments. This also avoids the centralization of the legal system required to enforce the contract as its ultimate backing, hence, quote, smart contracts. Three, there is a counterparty subject to the centralization of the law or a similar credible enforcement mechanism, but it is custody, trading, and clearing that no longer require centralization because the security takes the form of a freely, trustlessly transferable digital bearer asset. Point 1. DeFi as Trust There is a counterparty, but neither the law nor any credible enforcement mechanism of real-world contractual guarantees is a point of centralization, and so the flow of money per the claim on counterparty commitments and holder rights operates on trust. Point 1 describes interpersonal credit and points to the difference between decentralized and peer-to-peer as we have delineated the two. In a space in which nobody can be excluded, contractual rights to flows of money must be freely tradable, and hence must be securities. The purpose of securities is to scale capital formation beyond what this kind of backed-by-trust credit can support. Why would you need to construct a contract to be freely tradable and priced exclusively between two people who know and trust each other already? In addition, the point of a blockchain is, in theory, to engineer trustlessness. And so one wonders why blockchains would be a worthwhile means of achieving this decentralization in the first place. And we are once again back to pondering peer-to-peer applications instead. The point of the centralization of the law is to avoid governance abuses that are invariably likely to arise when counterparties do not know one another. This is a rather amusing point to focus on given ex-Bitcoin crypto's faux-libertarian pretenses, disdain for securities regulations, and repeated insistence that issued stablecoins and native governance, utility, and voucher tokens are not unregulated securities. Securities always involve handing over a definite amount of money now in exchange for the contractual promise of a usually indefinite amount of money in the future. But promises can be broken. This is such an incredibly simple premise of human behavior, it is surprising and unfortunate that it needs to be explained. Millions of dollars, billions even, will more often than not be taken in violation of promises made instead of given to strangers unless there is a credible enforcement mechanism to prevent this. FTX is a perfect example, which we will get to further down. Reputation may be such a mechanism in a free market, but it is defaulting back to trust and can be very useful but only get you so far. Fraud is rampant in, quote, free markets for reputation, even when there is a credible threat of legal action. Issued stablecoins, including wrapped Bitcoin, rely on trust. They are not actual dollars or Bitcoin, but IOUs for dollars or Bitcoins that are technically and legally unenforceable. As it happens, they may even be illegal and hence in some sense less than legally unenforceable. Any actual Bitcoin or dollars exchanged for such a token may well never be returned. Quote, holders of sole BTC 
wrapped Bitcoin on Solana, allegedly custodied by FTX, are discovering this at the time of writing. Voucher and utility tokens rely on trust, even more obviously so, as their utility is entirely at the discretion of the issuer. In the case of governance tokens, on the other hand, the question is not as straightforward to answer. One response might be that they do not rely on trust because claims are automatically enforced by the smart contract, so more in line with point two, which we get to just below. Not by trust at all, and the terms of enforcement are open and transparent. But this is not quite addressing the question. We must consider who has entered into a contract with whom, what promises around flows of money were codified, and what commitments are still live. The buyer of the governance token traded money up front for the rights to some kind of nominal return generated by relationship with the smart contract, be it fee revenue, further token issuance, or by some other method. By this understanding, the smart contract itself is the counterparty, and we are firmly in point two on automatic enforcement of commitments. In other words, this again seems like application equity. But if we investigate this analogy further, we realize that if we have regular equity, there are two important differences to the above naive analysis. One, the commitments to which we are contractually entitled do not end with the company, as if it too were an autonomous entity, but with the management of the company and the board. In other words, those controlling the resources which generate the flows of money to which we are entitled. And two, there is a credible enforcement mechanism of these commitments. Securities law. The proper analysis here is that, one, fellow governance token holders control the resources generating the flows of money, and hence they, not the smart contract, are the counterparties. And two, in this relationship, there is no credible enforcement mechanism after all. We do, in fact, trust that they will not utilize their governance tokens in a way that alters the governance mechanism of the smart contract, or the smart contract itself, to our disadvantage. More simply, regardless of whether or not we trust them, we can't stop them. An interesting corner case is where governance tokens are constructed so as to only be capable of amending certain parameters of the smart contract, the idea being that holders would want the flexibility to amend these based on differing market conditions in the future. For the sake of clarity, let us call governance tokens which collectively have the ability to arbitrarily amend the smart contract unrestricted and those that can only tweak predetermined parameters restricted. This acknowledgement introduces some subtlety here around the exact relationship between automated enforcement, per point two that follows, and human decision-making and trust. Hence, we will continue this discussion just below in the following subsection. Governance tokens aside for a moment, we would argue point one therefore does not apply. Operating on trust is not a means of achieving credibly decentralized finance. Point two. DeFi as smart contracts. The contracts are enforced automatically, and the counterparty has no choice but to meet its commitments. This also avoids the centralization of the legal system required to enforce the contract as its ultimate backing. Hence, quote, smart contracts. 
what if the counterparty has no choice but to meet their liabilities because enforcement happens via smart contract execution? This at least has some potential, but we must immediately return to take issue with governance tokens and algorithmic stablecoins. There is a fundamental trade-off at play here that much of crypto DeFi seems not to want to address. If you employ immutable automatic enforcement, you are ruling out human judgment, hence most capital allocation and hence most of finance. But if you allow human judgment, you need some form of enforcement other than automatic or you are operating solely on trust, which can't scale, and hence can't be credibly described as decentralized. The question is how best to deal with the trade-offs that are unavoidable given what finance is and is for. That is not to say that those parts of finance that do not rely on human judgment are without value, however. Quite the contrary. The commitment to uncertain future flows offered by varieties of hedging and market making, for example, can almost certainly be enforced entirely with smart contracts, given appropriate trustless information feeds. Unfortunately, very few smart contracts in crypto DeFi are truly immutable, because such a smart contract could never be updated and would have to be set up and deployed in its final form. This was exactly the problem allegedly, quote, solved by governance tokens, on which we can now resume our analysis. The distinction between restricted and unrestricted governance tokens is crucial. We will give some credit to the design methodology of restricted governance tokens in that they appear to be sincere attempts to address the fundamental trade-off just outlined. Yet the immutability of restricted governance tokens creates governance pressures from the desirability of flexibility and inflexibility alike. Which parameters can be tweaked, by whom, and by how much, once decided upon, is still immutable by definition. While it may seem wise to introduce flexibility to changing circumstances, that flexibility cannot be open-ended or else the governance token becomes unrestricted and defeats the purpose of this subtlety. If flexible enough to later change what parameters can be tweaked, by whom and by how much, the governance is unrestricted. If restricted, then the perfect decision needs to be made at the outset and we are once again in the conundrum of needing to deploy this smart contract in its final form. This enormously restricts our ability to involve human judgment in the allocation of capital. At the same time, the introduction of any parameters that can be tweaked creates a trust issue that we are inadvertently making impossible to solve, given we are stipulating that these are the only tweaks allowed, in other words, it is entirely possible that these tweaks will encompass ways of abusing governance power. For example, the tweakable parameter could relate to the control of issuance of the governance token, in which different parties will naturally have different interests. If the governance is so restricted as to only tweak this parameter and not be capable of addressing how parameters are tweaked, then holders simultaneously have to trust each other and be subject to the automatic enforcement of whatever actions other holders take. To a large extent, unrestricted governance tokens are implicitly trying to overcome this tension. 
However, if the power to amend a smart contract beyond the restricted tweaking of parameters exists, it can be acquired, and once acquired, the smart contract can be amended to anything at all. A potential amendment, if not the likely one, would be to remove the governance rights of everybody else. Given governance tokens are securities, this violates the initial real-world contract with counterparties. If this is at all possible and cannot be credibly enforced against, then we are back relying on trust that it won't happen. Theoretical commentary aside, we must finally address the practical reality of the vast prevalence of bolt-on utility tokens, masquerading as governance tokens. In this case, root access to the smart contract is not actually democratized, but a centralized team of developers retains control of the direction of the project, either by holding the keys or by driving upgrades to version 2, version 3, and so on. A generous interpretation of this setup would be that the developers and backers tackle the fundamental trade-off of human judgment in capital allocation and credible decentralization by raising capital with decentralization theater while continuing to allocate it with human judgment. A more cynical interpretation would be that the purpose of such bolt-on utility tokens was and is transparently to skirt securities laws and banking regulations in raising this capital by moving from the model of you give me money, I give you tokens to you put money in this smart contract, it gives you governance tokens so long as your money stays in. The other usage of smart contracts in DeFi we said we would get back to is that of algorithmic stablecoins. We believe that the unfortunate reality is that most algorithmic stablecoins are unsound in the long run. The only way to guarantee redemption of a reserve of fiduciary media is to, one, physically have the reserve, and two, have your promise to redeem be subject to a credible enforcement mechanism. Actual dollars in bank accounts have no crypto-native existence, and so cannot be controlled by a smart contract. Bitcoin has a crypto-native existence, but at the time of writing, no way to trustlessly manipulate on other blockchains. Keep this in mind, however, as we will come back to the prospect of a trustless peg further down. Absent direct physical exposure. The only option is synthetic price exposure. If we are looking to automate this, we need to guarantee convertibility into some other priced asset. But you can't guarantee the price of any asset. And so we end up issuing fiduciary media denominated in asset X, but backed by asset Y, where the price ratio of X to Y floats. Therefore, we immediately encounter a capital efficiency problem, because the only way to guarantee protection against a Z% drawdown in asset Y is to over-collateralize the fiduciary media of asset X by Z divided by 100 minus Z times. Arbitrarily high over-collateralization could in theory work, if also paired with having reason to believe that asset Y will at least be relatively stable in price against asset X if not likely to appreciate. But all approaches in crypto DeFi have driven in exactly the other direction on both counts, using native, governance, utility, or voucher tokens as the reserve assets, 
with no reason whatsoever to expect helpful movements in their prices relative to asset X, almost always USD, and advertising the capital efficiency of the low collateralization requirements. We end up in this bizarre situation of accidentally fractionally reserved fiduciary media, where the centralization ratio is a function of a floating price of an unregistered security and the reserves aren't really reserves at all because they will be liquidated per big enough movements in this price. If, or when, the collateral stays under the value of the issued media for long enough, regardless of what ingenious mechanism of satisfying redemptions has been created with supposedly immutable smart contracts, secondary markets will begin to reflect the doubt that these redemptions can be met, and either the peg will break, the reserves will drain completely, possibly near instantaneously in a novel digital spin on free banking-esque note dueling, or some mix of the two. As with all fractional reserve banking, everything is great so long as credit is expanding and prices are going up, but leverage bites both ways. To give credit where it is due, some algorithmic stablecoins have sophisticated mechanism incentivizing holders to dynamically adjust their collateral, including adversarial positioning relative to other holders such that entirely selfish motives push all to protect the system collateralization as a whole. While these incentives may work on a short-term case-by-case basis, they cannot help in the long run if market panic in asset Y lends itself to a simple calculus that liquidating and losing the reserve entitlement is cheaper than potentially endlessly committing more falling reserves to prop up a fixed-faced value of fiduciary media. So again, it will probably only work in the long run if we have reason to believe that asset Y will at least be relatively stable in price against asset X, if not likely to appreciate. This might work with decentralized money as the backing. But do we believe this of native, governance, utility, and voucher tokens? We leave that up to the reader. There is an interesting parallel here to our critique of governance tokens. Although rooted in a smart contract, and hence the behaviors by which humans can interact with the system are precisely and transparently specified, this still can't force humans to act in the desired way. Humans can think outside the smart contract and choose to ignore entirely the incentives it provides. Either the smart contract decides or humans decide, but the smart contract cannot make humans decide. This circle cannot be squared. Algorithmic stablecoins are not fundamentally flawed in the same way, to be clear. With governance tokens, the smart contract is effectively an illusion of having designed away the potential for governance abuse. With algorithmic stablecoins, we assume the smart contract is genuine, and the vulnerability is not one of governance abuse as such, but that the incentives it provides may simply be ignored given real-world circumstances which the smart contract cannot be said to understand. All this said, point two does leave an opening for credible decentralized finance. Actual smart contracts that manipulate decentralized securities or decentralized money natively or via a trustless peg. 
Point 3. DeFi as the network, not the asset. Let's pause one more time and talk about how amazing it is to get sats back on all of your Christmas shopping. This is honestly where the fold card really shines. It's in bills and it's in like said things that you have to pay for. But the best thing about the Christmas shopping is that you can manage things. You can almost exclusively use the gift cards, which give you even more sats back than just the normal card purchases. So I've hit my limit. The, the Amazon for the Spin Plus that is just $10 a month with the fold card it gets you higher sats back returns on everything that you buy, and you get 5% back on Amazon gift cards. Or, of course, if, uh, like me actually earlier, if you get a spin on like a little $5 purchase, which was actually a $4.99 Apple subscription of some sort, uh, I got a boost of an extra 1%, so I got 6% back on my Amazon gift cards. And not to mention that if you're getting some Bitcoin stuff for the holidays, uh, they have really good discounts or sats back on some of the Bitcoin companies in the space. Like somebody in the Audionauts actually used Start9 gift cards in order to buy their embassy and got it's it is literally 8% back right now on Start9 gift cards. And CoinKite right now gets you 10% back, which unfortunately doesn't stack with my discount code. So you can either get 10% off or 10% back in sats. And if you sign up right now for free, you don't, have to, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to get the premium card or the Spin Plus card or anything. Just get the app and use my link. You get 20,000 sats for free and you're donating 10,000 10, sats to the show. They're running like a temporary thing where you get 20,000 sats and I get 10,000 sats. And all you have to do is go to guyswan.com fold just to check it out. Link, details, discount code, all that good stuff right there in the show notes. All right. Let's jump back into the section titled Point 3. DeFi as the network, not the asset. There is a counterparty subject to the centralization of the law or a similar credible enforcement mechanism, but it is custody, trading, and clearing that no longer require centralization because the security takes the form of a freely, uncensorably transferable digital bearer asset. In this case, we assume the security has some credible enforcement mechanism, most likely real-world legal registration. Hence, the question of rights and commitments of money flows is solved without solely trust in the issuer and without automatic enforcement per points 1 and 2. Instead, we consider decentralizing custody, trading, and clearing. This latter property exists in crypto as well as in Bitcoin and is often touted as one of the main benefits that financial instruments can be directly controlled by the user without centralized gatekeepers for custody or middlemen for exchange and clearing. An obvious problem presents itself here in that the former property does not apply. Issued stablecoins and native governance utility and voucher tokens are unregistered securities, the governance of which relies on trust that cannot scale past people who already know one another. We have already made this point several times, however, and so we'll instead focus on two different and subtler problems, the censorability of the network and the concept 
of Maximum Extractable Value, or MEV. To be clear, neither completely prevent workable decentralized securities, but they are strong vectors of re-centralization. At the very least, they are major inconveniences that ought to be avoided in decentralized finance, if at all possible. We won't go through every Layer 1 blockchain as similar arguments apply to Ethereum, Solana, and BSC. By far the largest by market capitalization of these native tokens and supported on these chains. Solana and BSC barely need any discussion as they are unequivocally centralized. It is not at all common for, quote, validators to take the network offline for hours at a time. Ethereum is more complicated as it is notionally much more decentralized in terms of number of users and distribution of tokens. However, the shift in consensus mechanism has almost immediately led to OFAC compliance in around 70% of blocks produced. In other words, enough large and centralized entities are technically interdependent on each other, and we can easily imagine them in time becoming jointly liable for each other's behavior in validating blocks. The exact mechanics are outside the scope of this paper, but we would argue that the nature of proof-of-stake is such that this vector of recentralization is only likely to get worse over time. There is a subtlety here worth drawing attention to in emphasizing how dire censorability is for hoped-for decentralization. Blockchains are necessarily distributed global states. In and of itself, this is an enormously more centralized starting point than the reality in traditional finance of securities issuance, trading, clearing, custody, and ultimately, ownership. Insofar as valid alterations to this global state are permissionless and pseudonymous, we can credibly claim decentralization. However, the ability to censor transactions destroys such a hope. MEV is similar. In any network with privileged actors, there will be asymmetries of access and information. In smart contracting blockchains, there are necessarily such privileged actors because assembling transactions in the most profitable way requires a lot of expertise and enormous computational power. A market naturally arises in which relatively unsophisticated block proposers auction those slots to sophisticated block builders. This enables a range of trading behavior, such as front-running and sandwich trading, that would be illegal in traditional finance. It is estimated over $600 million has already been extracted from DeFi on Ethereum alone. Hence, this represents another vector of re-centralization around the well-capitalized, who by definition have the best access to the single global state being proposed as the record of all securities ownership. The thread running through these concerns is the existence of a global state in which these securities are represented in the first place. It is worth asking why this would even, in theory, be needed. What do we achieve for which we must trade the centralized overhead of a blockchain, centralized censorability, and centralized visibility? What are the transaction fees paying for, if not hard-won trustlessness? We can only think of one worthwhile answer, 
global access. If there is an advantage to the issuer of a security of having effectively global price discovery and liquidity, this may well be worth it. But if not, we aren't so sure. Again, there are other means of creating digital bearer assets that work within more restrictive trust regimes than a blockchain, and which are better described as peer-to-peer than as decentralized. Let us now combine these theoretical insights into a framework for practically workable decentralized finance. Workable Decentralized Finance A Recap To recap, point one gets us nowhere. We cannot operate securities on trust alone in a meaningfully decentralized environment. Point two allows for smart contracts without backdoor governance that manipulate decentralized securities or decentralized money natively or via a trustless peg. Point three allows for registered securities which are decentralized insofar as seeking to take advantage of a blockchain network rather than a blockchain asset. It also provides two ideal characteristics of such a network, that it is not censorable and that either confidential or off-chain transactions can reduce and minimize MEV, if not remove it entirely, and one ideal threshold characteristics of the securities themselves, that their issuer truly requires global price discovery and liquidity. If we allow that Bitcoin is decentralized money, then this all pops out the following. Point two allows for the Lightning Network, DLCs, LBTC on Liquid, RBTC on RSK. Point three allows for RGB or Taro assets, insofar as they are legally enforceable and hence do not operate on unscalable trust alone, given they are rooted in Bitcoin's network and transferred off-chain, or for registered security tokens on Liquid, RSK, or Sequentia, as their transfer can be confidential. The combination of points two and three allow for immutable smart contract execution of hedging contracts, automated market making, and more between Bitcoin and decentralized securities on any of the aforementioned scaling layers in which this is technically possible. The caveat to point three is more cultural than technical and could be thought to amount to, are you sure you need blockchain-based tokens at all rather than other more trust-dependent means of achieving digital bearer assets? Why not use a system like Fediment or Pair Credit? As mentioned in the introduction, we believe a variety of decentralized finance will emerge on Bitcoin, and to some extent, already has. Evidently, this narrowing down of worthwhile characteristics ends with fairly Bitcoin-centric criteria. It is worth considering what, if anything, could lend these characteristics back to crypto DeFi. And the answer isn't quite nothing. If the native tokens of layer one blockchains were credibly decentralized money, then most of our reasoning around Bitcoin would likewise apply, and most of the concerns outlined at length above would disappear. Otherwise, we see one feasible combination of factors by which decentralized finance could come to be on non-Bitcoin blockchains. First, there needs to be a way to manipulate decentralized money in these ecosystems while retaining custody and without counterparty risk. Second, 
Real economic returns must be the root of subsequent layers of financialization. Note these first two points once again amount to it has to actually be finance and it has to actually be decentralized. Third, securities involving human judgment in the deployment of capital need to have credible mechanisms of enforcement that do not rely on trust. If these first two factors are enabled, then automatic execution per point two can become useful, whereas currently it amounts to little more than complexity theater and a velocity catalyst. In other words, either the code governs or the law governs, with no LARPy governance tokens muddying the water on the relevance of human involvement. Fourth, the transfer of these assets would ideally be enabled off-chain, confidentially, or some as-yet-undiscovered method for avoiding MEV, or at least minimizing it. Fifth, the networks themselves, as well as the native tokens of the networks, would need to be credibly decentralized and incapable of censoring valid updates to global state. Sixth, the case needs to be made that global price discovery and liquidity is worth the trade-off of a handful of centralization vectors that come with using a blockchain in the first place, rather than some other method of creating more trust-dependent digital bearer assets. But frankly, while this may be feasible, we think it is unlikely for a simple reason. The culture in crypto focuses on moving in the other direction on almost all of these points besides the first. There are toxic incentives to monetize by token issuance rather than putting capital at risk to provide a valuable service, which we analyze in more detail in Part 4, Let's Play the Blame Game. Every effort is made to insist that stablecoins, native, governance, utility, and voucher tokens are not unregistered securities even though they are and are automatically enforced even though they are not. As crypto base layers race ahead with proliferating complexity, both MEV and censorability via re-centralization are becoming worse and worse problems. And there appears to be little appreciation of the concept that this would likely imply a dramatic price decline in the native token of whatever blockchain achieves all the aforementioned. This is likely because, were this to happen, it could not be reconciled with the prevailing investment ethos and theses that relies on leverage and exit liquidity, amongst other unsavory factors, all of which are catalyzed by global price discovery and liquidity. True peer-to-peer -peer is a non-sequitur in such an environment. It leaves retail out of the market and money on the table. Most unfortunately of all, we would even argue that this rough direction was once the norm and the aspiration, even if the stage reached was questionable and incomplete. The evolutionary step touched on briefly in the very first subsection of adding fees and distinguishing between users and liquidity providers is an importantly different construct to the majority of what has been developed since and outlined just above. This involves putting capital at risk and offering a service users pay for. This was actually capitalistic, but the problem was that hardly anybody used it or cared about it besides the developers. This was very probably because without facilitating the underlying pricing of capital or manipulating decentralized money, 
it is not entirely clear what the use case was or whether it was worth the real risk. Nobody wanted 2% yield on stablecoins, especially not at the risk of impermanent loss, least of all VCs. So-called generalized mining, i.e. wash trading to simulate usage of the applications to try to honeypot wider adoption, was indulged in for a time. But as it would shortly turn out, the catalyst for adoption was precisely toxic incentives to monetize by token issuance, exaggerate via yield farming, and realize via immediate and total exit liquidity. In the end, these dwarfed every other incentive by which DeFi might have inched towards credibly decentralized finance. As mentioned in the introduction, we approve of the idea of decentralized finance in theory, even if DeFi isn't this in practice. What DeFi is in practice leads naturally to FTX. Part 3. The Short, Sad Saga of FTX Okay, we're going to pause it right here uh, for today. I'm going to try really, really hard to finish this up and get this out in part two for tomorrow. Um, and then maybe over the weekend, I've got another piece that I want to start on. Um, I'll probably be limited on the guy's takes just because of that. I want to just get out as much recording as possible. I'm, there's a lot of pieces that you guys have recommended in the last like two weeks, and I've gotten like a fifth of them out. So uh, I'm trying to keep up. Um, but uh, uh, with that, uh, I will try to have this out tomorrow. And over the weekend, probably, I'll just post a no guy's take, no intro, anything like full on uh, audio of this, like as an audiobook style, um, just so that this one can be easily linked to and shared um, uh, outside of the show. Because I think this is a really good piece. This is a great follow up to Only the Strong Survive. And I like also that they're digging a little bit more into um, uh, essentially some of the fundamental trust elements involved when you're issuing like how these things relate to the user and the ultimate counterparty involved and i uh i think the description it's like hard to really pin down what the problem like how bad the governance token system is because it is just an attempt to it's another one of those like moving the goalpost sort of thing is where you're attempting to decentralize a function of centralization but then you've just moved the problem to a different location, very much like proof of stake, is that you don't have anything objective to, to lean on in order to come to consensus over the, what the current state is. Um, you basically have to reference the network. You have to reference um, uh, the history in order to determine what the accurate history is. There's, there's no objective connection to reality. And, and then that lack of cost makes it no, removes the risk to um, censoring transactions because there's no physical cost to, uh, to trying to censor because the network itself can't know that it is censoring. It doesn't know what transactions are allowed. It's just, it's just either valid or not, and it either has the, it fulfills the consensus mechanism, mechanism or it does not. 
for a great example is just that Bitcoin could be could have blocks that have no transactions in them, or they could be open completely full of transactions that spend to nowhere and just do like op returns or something. Bitcoin does not know and cannot care about the subjective determination as to whether or not those are censored transactions or those are not, you know, they're quote unquote bad blocks. If it's valid, it's valid, period. It is the human judgment, it is the social judgment that determines whether or not certain transactions being excluded is censored, is, is being censored, and thus the subsequent punishment for it, if the incentives, if the economic incentives do not correct for that problem, the, the consequences have to be social. It's just like, you know, Eric Wall literally wrote an article, I don't think I, don't think I covered it on the show, but um, about social slashing, about literally having the community vote if a minor did something wrong or perceived as subjectively bad, that people would vote to destroy their money. And it's like, do you not see how that defeats the entire point? Like, this is your fundamental consensus mechanism is a community trying to vote which therein has the exact problem like you go back to nodes can be civil attacked you're trying to use somebody's com- like an instance of a computer as proof of a human or you're saying put in a new stake i mean it just you, you go right back to having to figure out a consensus problem to solve the breaking of your consensus mechanism and I don't think it was a coincidence that when Ethereum went proof of stake, how quickly the OFAC, the OFAC compliance basically just kind of flooded into the network. And the stakers can't even like protest it. There is no code to withdraw your staked coins. They are stuck indefinitely. I mean, the, the people who don't I don't I don't understand how you don't see that as like just full on capture. Like this is centralization to a rather incredible de- degree. They don't even have recourse. They don't have code to do anything about this. And they have to wait for the Ethereum Foundation to fund the devs to write the code and publish it so that they can all trust them, download it and then supposedly have access to their coins. But if the stakers If the staking custodians and the staking pools are now deciding that everyone's going to be OFAC compliant and they're going to begin, and and we're basically on the verge of just total censorship of uh, a subset of transactions, if it looks like additional code to the network is going to put that in threat, is is going to make that, uh, put that uh, compliance at risk, how how many of them do you think are going to really download that? Is Infura, is Infura going to do that? I mean, MetaMask just admitted that they're tracking everybody's IP addresses and balances. I mean, you got like two years to think about this. You really think that's you really think the situation is going to get easier in two years? That this is going to continue to go in your direction when it's in or in, in the direction of decentralization and users having choice and definitely no censorship on Ethereum? when how aggressively it's moved against that direction you know alan and andrews talk like in this piece like just the culture of crypto has 
constantly stepped away from that direction because of the lack of the return. And that's something that I think, that's one of the big takeaways, I think, from the first half of this uh, piece, is uh, I've got this section that I just want to reread real quick. It says, There are toxic incentives to monetize by token issuance rather than putting capital at risk to provide a valuable service, which we analyze in more detail in Part 4, Let's Play the Blame Game. Every effort is made to insist that stablecoins, native governance utility, and voucher tokens are not unregistered securities, even though they are, and are automatically enforced, even though they are not. As crypto base layers race ahead with proliferating complexity, both MEV and censorability via recentralization are becoming worse and worse problems. And there appears to be little appreciation of the concept that this would likely imply a dramatic price decline in the native token of whatever blockchain achieves all the aforementioned. This is likely because, were this to happen, it could not be reconciled with the prevailing investment ethos and theses that rely on leverage and exit liquidity, amongst, un uh, amongst other unsavory factors, all of which are catalyzed by global price discovery and liquidity. True peer-to-peer -peer is a non-sequitur in such an environment. It leaves retail out of the market and money on the table. Now that section, I think, can be a little bit hard to digest, so I want to, I want to give my version, my, my take, on what I think he, what is being said here. If I wanted to sum up what I think is important about the end of section two, real capital formation is hard. It is slow. It requires very meticulous and very serious risk on trying to understand what the market wants, predict the market's problems, solve those problems, and do so efficiently enough to make a return. You know what isn't hard? Copy and pasting a, a, a blockchain, a piece of software, selling a token connected to it, slapping an idea of what it's going to do one day, make it as grand as you possibly can. Why not? You don't have to actually have anything. You just need to promise something. Give it a 10%, 20% yield, call it distribution, and you know, give a big pre-mine to your VC investors and organize a pump and dump. All of that stuff is incredibly easy. And you open this up to a global market with retail investors? Man, that's penny stocks gone wild. And best of all is you can argue all day and you can throw, you can, you know, raise this money and you can throw some of it at developers and you can kind of say that you did something and here's this great thing that you built with all this capital. But you know what none of it has to do? Be valuable or useful. Because the goal was exit liquidity. And I can tell you right now, you don't even have to tell me what the project is. If it's got like 10% quote yield, 20% yearly ROI, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's a VC hopes and dreams that they just need to sell you long enough to get out. But there is nothing in the crypto space making 8%, 10%, 20% returns that isn't just getting paid for by new token issuance, 
absurd amounts of leverage, inflation in the token, or a series of pump and dumps, or they're the thing that's facilitating the trade of all of the token yield and uh, inflation and series of pump and dumps. And there are so many cases of this over and over and over again. It's proven to be the same old crap under a new umbrella or a new narrative. And it doesn't turn out any different. And it's like people are surprised that it all happens again. If it was real sustainable value, then it's going to have much slower growth and it's going to have much more risk. And none of the VCs want that crap. That's not why they're in crypto. Anyway. Um, I don't want to go too far. Um, we'll we'll be hitting uh, a little bit of this in uh, the guys take following the second piece when we or the second part of this when we finish this whole thing out. So don't forget to subscribe. The second half is well, it's a little bit more than a half, but uh, the rest of this paper is as good and or better than the first half. So definitely, definitely stay tuned. A big thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to Fold and the Fold debit card and to CoinKite and their many, many hardware wallet and uh, Bitcoin security devices for bringing this show to you guys and keeping the lights on and keeping me fed and keeping me up until midnight uh, doing these episodes. Lots of great reads coming this week. Alex Gladstein also on the way. So stay tuned. Stay subscribed. This is Bitcoin Audible. I Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. Money that is easy to produce is no money at all, and easy money does not make a society richer. On the contrary, it makes it poorer by placing all its hard-earned wealth for sale in exchange for something easy to produce. Seyfedean Amus. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.